This is the ASC podcast with your moderator, Kevin Pei, Houston Methodist Hospital, June Shim, Wright State University, and Tanya Aurora from Augusta University Health. This program brought to you by the Committee on Education Technology of the Association for Surgical Education, embracing the mission of excellence, innovation, and scholarship. The ASC is impacting surgical education globally. I'm so delighted to be here uh, with Dr. Ginzel. Uh, Dr. Ginzel is the clinical professor of managerial psychology at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Since 1992, Professor Ginzel has been teaching the art of negotiation, managerial psychology, and executive development. She received her bachelor's degree, summa cum laude, in psychology from the University of Colorado. And at Princeton, she studied experimental social psychology, where she earned a master's degree and a PhD. Her area of focus is leadership, which in her opinion should be viewed as a verb, not as a role. She defines leadership capital as the courage, wisdom, and capacity to decide when to manage and when to lead. In 2000, President Clinton awarded Dr. Ginzel the nation's highest honor for volunteer service. He gave her the President's Service Award for solving critical social problems for the greater good. This remarkable educator is also a two-time recipient of the James S. Kemper Jr. Grant in Business Ethics. Her workbook, Choosing Leadership, was published in October 2018. It debunks common myths and misconceptions about leaders and leadership. Dr. Ginzel encourages us to know the difference between when to manage and when to lead. And in this respect, we will all follow a personalized path. So in today's conversation, we're going to discuss Dr. Ginzel's thoughtful exercises and activities to help us learn to mine our own experience, recognize our own behavioral patterns, and improve our decision-making. I'm so excited to talk to you today. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for the invitation, June. Oh, you're very welcome. You're in Chicago and I'm in Dayton, Ohio. Thank you for joining us through this uh, virtual location. Now, in choosing leadership, you write that learning through others' experiences, uh, through interviews, is a wonderful opportunity for growth. <laughs> Can you expand on that? So, yes, thank you. I, I, you know, the book, every chapter starts with a verb, an action. And as you mentioned, I'm, uh, I'm trying to change the conversation around leadership. I'm trying to get people everywhere to think about uh, leading as a verb and not leader as a person or a role or a noun. Uh, so, so speaking about learning, um, we can learn from our own direct experiences, but we can learn from the experiences of others. And so there's a chapter in the book about learning from others, which is vicarious learning, right? So, um, who is it? Uh, um, Benjamin Franklin, uh, he's often quoted as having said, experience is the best teacher. Have you heard that quote, experience is the best teacher? I have. Right. Well, that's, it may be a quote someone has said, but it's not what uh, Benjamin Franklin said. His quote is, experience is a dear teacher, meaning an expensive teacher. 
And um, so the reason it's expensive is because we don't always learn from our experiences, but one way to make it less expensive is to actually um, uh, learn from the experiences of others. So when we learn vicariously, we don't um, get the benefits of the success of the individual, but we also don't suffer the consequences of failure. We get to observe and learn from others. So that's that's what I, I think is really important. Leadership and learning are, I actually think the book is as much about learning as it is about leadership. And this notion of learning from others through interviews, um, through, through, um, through TED Talks, through um, speeches, through all different types of everyday, everyday experiences or everyday knowledge, I think is, is really crucial for our uh, development, for our leadership development. And what is it about how the author, Jonathan Igg, and, you know, the famous NPR, Terry Gross, how they, how they frame their conversation? Yeah. Jonathan Igg, yeah. Jonathan, Jonathan is a good friend and an amazing, amazing biographer. So I don't know Terry Gross personally, but she is the goddess of interviewing. And Jonathan Igg is just uh, an amazing, amazing um, storyteller and uh, biographer. So what, what I learned from Jonathan is um, about the importance of rapport and um, um, sort of leading the the subject of your your understanding kind of where they are and trying to create a relationship. And I actually think that this is as simple as it sounds. I think relationships and community building are really at the core of understanding ourselves and others and making a bigger difference. So I I think that it's the relationship aspect. Um, I, I'm not sure exactly uh, what you're, where where you'd like me to go with this with this answer, but what I was thinking is that I have my students, my MBA students, interview. They come up with a topic like we're leading in a crisis, or learning from experience, or or mentoring others, and then they go out and, and uh, choose individuals to interview to learn from them. So I always tell my students that the most important question to ask people. Um, is what do you wish you knew? What do you know now that you wish you knew when you were in my situation, when you were on this side of the desk, when you were a student? And I think that that, the answer to that question contains so much wisdom. So that's kind of why I think interviewing others is so important, kind of the gist of, of their experience or their knowledge and wisdom. Yeah, I mean, that's what I got out of uh, the whole interviewing section about how it's really a model for learning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I just... You know, I love this quote, this Latin, you know, I'm not going to say it in Latin, but the, <laughs> but, but the proverb, spoken words fly away, words, written words remain. Yes. This is why, you know, yeah. you're trying to make your book a workbook, which is interactive. Is mm-hmm. this like saying writing is thinking made visible? Yes. Well, I, that's lovely. I, um, I didn't say that, but you did. It's, it's a great, that, that's a great, great uh, capture of the essence the idea is I always tell my students if you don't write it down it doesn't exist if you don't write things down it's really just a figment of your imagination so um, now we can't go around writing everything down so we have to be um, selective about what we capture and what we what we want to um, hold on to in order for our own growth so what I tell my students is, uh, you know, on the cover of the book is a green pen and um, this green pen is sort of a symbol um, of my, it, it, the green pen kind of captures everything I'm, I'm about. So the idea is that it's a phenomenon, it's practical, 
Um, I want people to become their own coach. I want people to, what I say, be wiser, younger. And um, part of the path is to capture the data of your own experience. So a lot of people, students particularly, you know, they're looking for knowledge and data and experience from um, the disciplines, you know. And in my world, it's psychology, economics, um, you know, political science, all the, all the disciplines. And I try to get my students to understand that the data of their own experience is as important for learning as the data that we get from, from the academic scholarly disciplines. So the green pen is intended to remind them to write things down, to capture the data of their own experiences so that they can look at trends and patterns in their own behavior so they can become their own coach. And the reason green um, is because uh, Pablo Neruda, the Chilean poet, said that he himself wrote his poetry in green ink because green is the color of Esperanza. Do you know what is Esperanza in Spanish? Yes, hope. <laughs> yes. So I give all of my students a green pen with hope that they will be wiser, younger, and that they will um, learn so that they can, um, oh, sorry, this, my computer is uh, asking to help me, um, so that they can um, uh, create the capacity to make better choices, which is my definition of leadership, uh, choices you make to create a better future behavioral choices. I, I, and, I, and I love how you use the word champion. Mm, I owe that to Dick Thaler. So, so it's so interesting. So uh, Richard Thaler is um, a, a friend and longtime colleague of mine. He just won the Nobel Prize. In, uh, he won the Nobel Prize uh, last year or so in economics. And he was kind enough to, to uh, give me feedback on the book. And the original book, I mean, the original draft, I used the word executive instead of champion because I teach executives. And, but I wanted to write the book for the general public. I wanted to write the book for, I'm not kidding, high school students, college students, um, coaches, stay-at-home parents, um, you know, executives, people in encore careers. I wanted it to be for the broad base. And, and he said, Linda, you are just not going to reach a broad base if you're going to refer to everyone as an executive because most people will not identify with that. And so uh, he challenged me to come up with, with um, another, a better label. Because remember, I'm trying not to use the word leader, and I'm trying not to use the word manager. I'm trying to use the verbs to lead and to manage. So anyway, um, I didn't think it was perfect, but it was the best I could come up with. And uh, he, he just, I gave him a list. Uh, he asked for 20 words that would, would substitute for executive. And I spent all night trying to find even 10 and... I was so embarrassed about half of them. I only sent him five in the morning and he chose champion. And I am just on my knees thanking him every day that, that he was so wise to help me realize that I needed an inclusive label uh, for everyone to identify with so that everyone could see that they manage and they lead. You don't need to have a title or be a certain, you know, have certain hair color or certain credentials or certain position that everyone has the app. Everyone can champion. Uh, a, a vision of a better tomorrow. So thank you. I love that word too, but it, what, I don't get the credit really for it. It's, it's Richard Thaler. <laughs> <laughs> you write that there are two key champion behaviors, leading and managing. The right. But there's, right. A third, there's a third important behavior, following. That's absolutely uh, correct. Can you talk about the effect of following and how it's vital? Can you expand on that? Mm -hmm. Well, it's so interesting. You know, there are thousands and thousands of, theories and books and articles on leadership. And there are like 
four frameworks on followership and literally four maybe maybe six and uh, each of them has the same same core there are basically two elements to follow um and this won't surprise you knowledge and action so so uh thought and behavior and so one is one one dimension of followership is how can we help people to think more critically how can we help them to 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 you know have more thoughtful critical thinking and how can we help people to engage more actively in their behaviors and their 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 actions so the idea is if you're low on if you're low on critical thinking or low on engagement low on thinking or low on engagement that's sort of like what people think of as sheep you know like like sheep uh, following behavior but what we want to do is to move on this diagonal to move on high engagement and high critical thinking. So what I tell my students and what I hope people will think about is under what conditions are you, like, under what conditions do you engage more actively? What are the conditions that make you think more critically so that you can make a better contribution? And then how do you create those conditions for others or at least experiment with, with the contingency between sort of what you do and what you get so that you can create a stronger environment that will help everyone to make better decisions and to to um, to uh, you know strive for more meaning. So that's why I think followership is very important, but very under very misunderstood. Everyone thinks you know, no one wants to be a follower; they all want to be quote leaders. But but most of the time we are following. Most of the time we are engaged and we are active and we are getting things done through others and for others. So when you talk about, you know, these key champion behaviors, I love what you wrote in the book about a skyscraper in leadership and a man, oh. William um, LeBaron Jenny, who was oh. an architect and an engineer. And, he, and you talk about how does one build from within? It, yeah, I call it structural integrity. So it's so interesting. You know, we all have these defaults and defaults. I call them defaults. They're in psychology, we call them heuristics. They're, they're shortcuts, they're habits. You can think of them as habits of mind. And we all have defaults. And usually our defaults serve us well. And they help us to be more efficient. Um, you know, think of a default, <clears throat> excuse me, on a computer. You don't have to make the decision every time. It sort of runs in the background. But every once in a while, um, what I try to help people understand is if we turn off that default and make a different choice, then we might be able to to do more and to... to, um, to you know, improve our, our outcomes and the outcomes of others. So this is the story of, of the skyscraper. So, um, and I live in Chicago and Chicago architecture, it's, it's the most, well, first of all, I'm sure Dayton is beautiful as well, but Chicago, I, I really, um, it's such a great place to, to live and to learn. And the city is so filled with um, beautiful buildings and it's the birthplace of the skyscraper. So I learned that, um, Generally, what happened is, you know, people tried to build taller buildings. They had to build stronger walls. And there's a building in Chicago that has six-foot uh, six uh, walls that are six feet thick in order to hold 12 stories. And so you can only go so far. The metaphor, the analogy that I write about is you can only go so far on your standard assumptions. You know, the assumptions were that the, the supporting walls had to support the height. And what the brilliance was of the skyscraper was to put the, the foundation, the structure inside so that the steel frame was inside and then the walls become curtains. And when you put the structure inside and you put the strength inside, 
then the sky's the limit. So that's why I love, and thank you for saying that you loved it too. I love this, this understanding that we can only go so high with our understandings, with our, with our default assumptions. The sky's the limit if we think about how can we change, what can we do better, what are our hopes, how can we move toward that? So, um, so that's kind of the idea behind the, the structural integrity and the, the kind of building from within. And that will also help you to, to buttress. You know, I know that um, for medical students and for, for people listening, um, there's so much um, pressure. There's so many, um, so many demands. Um, everything, you know, how do we build the resilience? How do, we, how do we get through each day with all of the stress and the severity of the consequences that we, we're responsible for? And I really think that if we have this strong internal frame framework, that we can withstand the kind of external forces better. That we can we can um, you know maybe be more more resilient and and, and move forward with more. Uh, I, I don't know. My favorite word is integrity, but I don't mean it only moral integrity. I mean strength. Yeah, I got. I, I got to tell you, I have to be transparent with you. Over the years, every time I go to Chicago, we always do an architectural tour because <laughs> it is always very inspiring. Your friend and your colleague offered you this advice: beware of once in a lifetime opportunities that come along every day. What is the wisdom and the sage advice in that? You know, it's so interesting. That's Jeff Pfeffer, and Jeff Pfeffer is. Um, a very wise man, and it was my senior colleague, my first job at Stanford. And for me, so that's what's interesting. See, when people give you advice or people tell you something, some pithy statement, it's like art. You know, different people can interpret that that in w- those words in different ways. The way I interpreted this is that, um, as I tell the story in the book, I was. Um, a new assistant professor. I was, you know, buttressed by all these <laughs> forces external to myself, MBA students, faculty, research, um, a new environment. I moved from the East Coast to the West Coast. I moved from being single to being married. I moved from psychology to business school. And I was just completely overwhelmed, completely overwhelmed. And um, I, when he came by my office one day and I said, how do you do this? You know, I don't know how to, I don't, I'm like a deer in the headlights. I don't even know where to move. I don't know how to make these decisions. I, I have this opportunity and this, and I have to do this and then this. And he just looked at me and he said, Linda, beware of once in a lifetime opportunities that come up every day. And the way I understood that is, you know, people like us, I hope most people that are listening have so many opportunities. We have so many choices. We have so many options. We only have one life and we only have so much energy. So we have to be be careful. We have to be be serious. We have to be, I don't know, what's the word, present and, and make these decisions with care. Um, and only I took his advice as only I know what is a lifetime once in a lifetime opportunity. People will present to me many opportunities. And if I think every one of them is a once in a lifetime opportunity, then I won't follow my own path. That's how I understood it. What did you think when you when you read that? What was your, your uh, take on on this? 
Yeah, I think everything it has to be personalized, like you said, and it, it is a personal journey. So you have to make that definition. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that's what I got out of this wonderful sage advice. <laughs> well, I'm so happy that Jeff's advice can benefit all your listeners and everyone who reads the book because uh, he's he's a very you know he's one of the most prolific writers in uh, organizational behavior, and um, and he has so much wisdom to offer. This is what part of also learning from others, right? Learning vicariously from others. If we just take the time to capture their their knowledge and ask the questions, and we don't don't just let it evaporate, but actually do something with the knowledge that we that we capture, um, I think that we can all kind of you know. Then uh, Benjamin Franklin's advice that uh, experience is a dear teacher. Then we can make it less expensive if we you know less dear if we um, capture value from from everyday experiences. I, now that we um, this podcast is really with the Association for Surgical Education, mm -hmm. I just want to remind the listeners that it was formed in 1980 and its members represent over 190 medical schools and institutions throughout the U.S. and Canada. Now, to remind our listeners, the mission of the association is to promote, recognize, innovate um, scholarships in surgical education. And I really want to touch on surgery. You know, surgery is increasingly multidisciplinary and sort of those old days of authoritarian leadership styles of that stereotypical surgeon isn't tolerated in the operating room or in the hospital. And, you know, I really want to go head on into how do we bust leadership myths in the surgical community? You know, are surgeons born good leaders? Do you have to be charismatic and extroverted? How do we break this down for our future surgeons, our current surgeons, our leaders, our educators? So it's so it's so interesting. Obviously, you know, you you care about the domain of medicine and the 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 surgeons and the, the audience that is listening. But the question is not is not um, tied to a domain or an occupation or a group. The, problem, the, the issue that we have is that there are all these stereotypes about leaders, right? So if you think about this, if you think about what is your charismatic idea, so people think charisma, you know, leaders, leaders need charisma. Well, I don't have charisma, so I can't be a leader. Well, if you think about, if you're trying to, if you put a leader, you know, I'm using this word in quotes, you think about who's your charismatic ideal, all right? So everyone listening, you know, think about who's your charismatic ideal right now. And, you know, who is it? I don't know, Mother Teresa, uh, Martin Luther King, whoever it is, you will never, very unlikely, that's why they're an ideal. You will never meet up to that. So if we have these stereotypes that we have to be a certain person to be a leader, if we need to look a certain way or we need to, as I said earlier, have a credential or, or um, you know, be of a certain age or be of a certain gender or whatever, we will never make the, we, we will limit our own ability to make a difference and our own ability, I think, to find meaning in the world. So what I'm trying to do, that's why I'm trying to get people to stop using the word leader because of these stereotypes that just come into our mind automatically when we hear the word leader. And, and also people, a lot of leadership education, they give people um, these like personality tests and say, oh, well, you know, you're, you're an XYZ or you're a pickle or a cucumber or you're this certain type. And as a social psychologist, what I'm trying to do is help people to understand that there, you know, the 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 way the way we think in social psychology is that 
behavior is a function of the person and the situation. So the situation that you're in is incredibly powerful. And we have to not just think about what does the individual bring, but what does the, what's the interaction between who you are and the environment that you are in. And so what, I, what I'm trying to do is to try to get people to stop thinking that you know, behavior is a function of the person, but behavior is a function of the person and the situation. And how do we create strong situations that help people make better decisions? So this, so the short answer, sorry, my answers are never very short, but the short answer to your question, I believe, is that we need to stop um, revering leaders. We need to stop thinking that leaders are on a pedestal. I want to bring leadership down and bring management up. Management is what we do every day. Management, when we manage, we are getting things done. We're delivering on promises. Right now, you and I, we're managing. We're getting work done in the present right now. And that is noble and that is important. And and don't let anyone tell you that managing, being in the day-to-day is any less important than leading. Leading is about changing the future. But if you don't have a strong present, you can't create a better future. And then once you create that future, it becomes the present. So you're back to managing again. So I'm trying to change, as I said, the conversation around leadership and help everyone to understand that they have the, the choice. They have the opportunity to, to champion a vision of a better tomorrow. And that it can be, a, a, I call it lowercase L or capital L. It can be a big transformational change. It can be a small change that, that makes a difference and creates a better future. But if we keep waiting to become a leader or to become the leader that we think we need to be, then our life is going to be passing us by and we're going to be losing the opportunity. We're, we're inhibiting our own choices by doing this. That's my message. Absolutely. Professor Ginzel, where does coaching and mentoring lie in leadership? Uh, you know, I th- leadership is very, um, you know, who, who knows what is the definition of leadership? There is no consensual definition. There's no right answer to this. So what I try to, to help people understand is that you, June, and I, and other everyone listening is acting on some definition. Whatever they think leadership is, we are all acting on, on our own definition of leadership. If we don't articulate it and understand it, I don't think we can have as much control over our, our, our future as we, would, as we say we want or we would like to have. So... Um, so what I'm going to do is help people understand that everyone has to come to their own definition of leadership. Some definitions are enabling, some definitions are inhibiting. So when we mentor others and when we help others to understand, I think that we, we um, depending on our definition of leadership, we may be either enabling or, or inhibiting their choices and their opportunities. So I think we, it's very important to... Um, be mindful as, as I'm not sure exactly what you're, what you're thinking of here in this question, but as mentors, we need to be very mindful that we have a big impact on the younger people, on the less experienced people, on the people who, who we are trying to help. And what are our own stereotypes, our own misunderstandings, our own defaults? Um, have we examined those? Are we, are we like, are we doing the best we can for the young people that we are trying to help? Or are we, limiting their opportunities based on our own stereotypes. So I think every one of us has a responsibility and an opportunity to figure out kind of, you know, to build our courage, our capacity, our wisdom, but it takes the self, you have to want to ask these questions of yourself. And and a lot of people don't, it's hard. These are hard questions. A lot of people rather just kind of 
you know, like, why do you do what you do? What, what, what is important enough for you to leave the stability of the present when you're managing and make a choice to change the future? That's a risky choice. You're going to a place that doesn't exist yet. It might not be there. Why do you believe so much in that? What makes you take that choice? So I think that this is my hope for the workbook is that it will be sort of a companion for, for people everywhere at all different levels that when they're ready to ask these questions and to kind of go on this path, the workbook will be there for them, that, that it will be a container, a place to hold their sort of evolving self. I hope that doesn't sound too, too strange, but sort of their, their evolving thoughts about what they want, who they want to become and what they believe about creating the future and about learning and leadership. Yeah, I mean, when I listen to you, I think about, you know, one of the things is when you're trying to adapt change and uh, grow this, you have to sort of become vulnerable. Yes. And slow down. Yes. And I guess the reason I was asking that, I was thinking of the the students, the residents, or anyone else listening, is um, what if someone doesn't have or can't find a mentor? Then how do they find coaching? Um, and what if they want to, if whoever, a medical student, again, a young faculty member, you know, want to try to lead organizational change, but they encounter resistance? Mm-hmm. Well, I guess it depends on, on what you, what you're, what you think about as coaching. So I think we, so I think we undervalue our own wisdom and the wisdom of our peers and others. So I think that one hope I have, for example, is that people will, um, get together and process the lesson. So for example, in, you know, the, it was very kind of you to, to introduce me by saying that I have these thoughtful exercises and activities and when I, and I think of them as being full of thought. And so one idea is if we're trying to understand better, how do we make change? What are our defaults? What are we trying to accomplish? Then the first step is to make that, to articulate that to ourself. And I think writing that down for ourself helps to make it more concrete and then sharing it, not sharing it just to pass the information, but I should say processing it with others, having our peers. What about peer coaching? Having a a set of our peers to push us, to challenge us, to say, why, what does this mean? Where does this go? You know, assuming that we, I always assume that people have um, a basic level of intelligence and and thoughtfulness and honesty and caring, especially people in our, in our network and in our circle. So we should work harder to leverage um, those opportunities in the people around us. What about outside of work? What about your place of worship? Who can you get to work with you to teach? What about um, your, your community? What about your family? I mean, I think that we undervalue the wisdom of the people around us. And if we thought about them also as, so see, what, what I think we do is we anchor on domain knowledge. So like we were, I was talking to you earlier when you said, you know, it's medicine, it's law, the, uh, the students, the surgeons, but, but we don't only have to get domain knowledge, knowledge from our own industry, our own uh, educational. We have knowledge everywhere. And it's a matter of capturing it, processing it, and, and acting on it. Um, I think we're running out of time, but I just wanted to let you know that after I read Choosing Leadership, a workbook written by you, I have been inspired. And so at Wright State Department of Surgery, we're going to use your workbook. <laughs> we actually created a pilot. It's a year-long longitudinal pilot 
where we're going to have our surgical residents using your workbook and the activities listed to touch on core competencies in the residency. Integrity, interpersonal skills, negotiating, wellness, time management, team building, recognition of bias, diversity, inclusion, and elevating others. So we're very inspired by your workbook. I wanna thank you. I always end my interviews with this question and it's a personal one, which is this. Professor Ginzel, what gives you joy? Well, I'm sitting here in tears after hearing what you're going to do at Wright State with the workbook, because this is my hope that I can make a, even a small difference. In it. So what gives me joy is, um, is being able to, to make um, a difference. And, and that's a really high level thing, and it can happen again in smaller, big ways. You have given me so much joy. I am overwhelmed by your, um, by your, your generosity, and your action in taking the workbook and taking it to people that you in your in your circle in order to help them to grow and to be better. So I am so honored. I, I can't even answer your question. I'm I'm really honored by by what you've just told me, and, and I'm I'm uh, I'm overwhelmed. Thank you so much, Jim. Well, I, you're, you know, the thing is, this is the beauty of uh, cross, uh, crossing interdisciplinary, um, you know, subjects. It's that I'm grateful because I was able to find this book, or I guess my husband was able to find this book. <laughs> good God. guy. You made a good choice, I think. He sounds good. <laughs> and that we're able to deliver this um, as our society is growing and we're all personally growing and developing. There's so much room to work together from medicine to business, all these different um, topics. And I think that, you know, the core of it is what you've said many times. It's a personal journey and um, that the definition continues to evolve, that there are no stereotypes. And I hope using this workbook, as our listeners have been um, tuning in, that it's really about focusing not just on clinical and technical skills to master surgery, that we also need to work on our non-technical skills. So I really thank you, Professor Ginzel, for taking your time to um, speak to us and, uh, and really allowing our audience to learn and hopefully to lead and to manage in the future. Thank you so much. It's really been an honor and I hope to meet you someday. Maybe I'll come visit you at Wright State. Oh, that would be wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much, Professor Ginzel. Thank you. And that wraps up another edition of the AIC podcast brought to you by the Committee on Education Technology, the Association for Surgical Education. You can check out many great resources on the ASE website at www.surgicaleducation.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast series where we discuss pressing issues in surgical education. We invite you to join ASE and get involved and wish you success in your pursuit of surgical education excellence.